Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people evolving business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hi, everybody. This is Vesna Luka, and you are listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. And on the show today, Nora Bateson, an award-winning filmmaker, artist, international lecturer, research designer, author, as well as founder and president of the International Bateson Institute. And today we'll discuss a lot of things, but mainly also the need for a more diverse ecology of knowing. How do we know things? And what is actually our ability to zoom in and study the details? And also our ability to zoom out and see the context. So Nora, a big welcome to my podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm grateful that our paths have crossed. I want to start by uh, mentioning your father, Gregory Bateson, who was really ahead of his time and he championed a new way of thinking, extremely relevant to our time in terms of uh, thinking uh, of relationships, of connections, of patterns and context, and really replacing this metaphor of the world as a machine by the metaphor of network. And I love one quote I found on your website, that the major problems in the world are the result of the difference between how nature works and the way people think. So what, what is it, uh, Nora, uh, what is there about our way of perceiving that makes us not see these beautiful, delicate, what you call interdependencies? I guess it's a relationship to causation and that that understanding of what causes what, what is effective, what is productive, what is the way that we can strategize from a, a point of identifying a, a situation or a problem or a desire to the point of manifesting a particular outcome. And that those ways in which the habits of thinking have been infected by industrial factories, just the whole way that we have done that, has produced a logic that's really deeply ingrained that is mechanistic. But that's not how a meadow is. It's not how a forest is. But if you're looking through the lens of a mechanistic idea of a functional forest, I mean, even in that word functional, you have a mechanistic metaphor. So you can start to even illustrate an ecological system as parts and holes that are functioning within particular thresholds, and you can model it and so on and so forth. But remember that these are the perception habits that come from the engineering world. So this is what a blueprint looks like, not how an ecology happens, which is over long periods of time with millions and millions and millions of organisms all changing each other. So there's a way in which uh, there's a call for transformation, for systems change, for ecological and even just slowing down exploitation, at least of other people and organisms and cultures, but without the recognition that even the way that we're talking about it is still stuck, the very thinking that's creating the problem. So, you know, a five-step guide to transformation. <laughs> exactly, all of that. But and as you say, there is a lot of focus and talk about systems change and systems thinking. Everybody's using those kind of terms, and I'm thinking, do they really know what they're talking about? But do you see good signs of, of people grasping the bigger picture better and, and kind of connecting the dots in a better way? There are folks out there that are doing a really good job of articulating. I think 
like Daniel Schmachtenberger is one person who is really holding multiple contexts simultaneously, and he can deep dive into the details of immigration problems that are connected to technology that are, in fact, inflamed by ecological issues that are caused by economic issues that are all about old issues. So he's very good at articulating the metacrisis, as he calls it. And so then the question is, what do you do about it? And this is where I'm pretty sure that most of the systemic work that's happening right now is not actually systemic. So this idea that you're going to identify a problem or a situation and then make a response that has some sort of causal effect on that, that is what is called first order. Okay, so if you step on a nail and your foot is bleeding and you pull the nail out and you tend the wound, you've made a first order solution. Okay, and in that sense, it's a good one, right? You're bleeding, you bandage it, but it matters how you bandage it. And it matters how you have been living, right? How healthy are you? How old are you, right? If my 94-year-old mother gets a wound in her foot, that's a whole different thing than if my 26-year-old son does. She doesn't have circulation to get down there and move the oxygen and the blood and the nourishment for the healing. So if her healing and her wound need a completely different approach that comes with a change of diet. Okay, so she's got to actually respond at second order. And that means that I have to be sure that I'm cooking things for her, which actually means that the rest of the family is eating things that are part of her regimen. When you're looking at living systems, you're never just dealing with something at first order. And yet, if you look at the SDGs, for example, there are a bunch of first order issues that are really all deeply nth order systemic. Um, and people understand that, I think, better now than they did some years ago. But still, the idea that you're going to put geoengineering particles in the sky to get rid of the carbon problem and the greenhouse effect is first-order solution. So that's the big piece of this that is ongoing. I've spent a lot of time in conferences and in meetings behind closed doors with people who are very serious about, you know, addressing the ecological issues and the global food crises and everything from mental health crises to tech and so on. But the tone they're speaking, it is as though they are discussing the mechanistic process of fixing a pickup truck. And I have yet actually to be in a room where a conversation was taking place that was addressing the issues of our time that was not actually in the tone and the logic and the credibility and the structure of thinking that's creating the problem. I have yet to see it. So in those places, okay, where I do see it is in the arts. I see it in various sort of strange things that pop up on the side. Some stuff is happening um, with early childhood education that's really interesting. There are things that are taking place in terms of various forms of design. But those are not people who think that what they're doing is creating systems change. They actually are, yeah. The way in which we are given entry into a world of communication and exploration of expressing and discovering the world that we live in. When that changes, it becomes possible to perceive different things. With different perception comes different forms of action. 
But if we try to keep the forms of perception within the familiar, the responses will also remain within the familiar. I listened to some, a talk you, you made some years ago where you were explaining to a crowd about how you went about the most important, difficult question before doing your award-winning documentary film about your father's life work and how you were asking yourself, how do I describe a living system? How do I describe this, my father, a human being? And how you were kind of wrestling with this, incorporating complexity, uh, poetry, the difficulties, all of that in a way that doesn't box things in or doesn't make it become linear, right? Which was, I think, a great example to really, uh, you know, understand this depth and this complexity and, and the context as you're referring to. I think when you are faced with the task of actually describing a living system that is not just something that you can identify as over there. So my father is not somebody over there. It's not a community I'm working with, right? It's my father. So where he ends and I begin and where I end and he begins is all mixed up. And so in that exploration of his complexity, I'm also exploring my own. So for me, this intimacy is a place where an understanding of the complexity, of the delicate interdependencies, becomes much more than just an intellectual mapping practice. It becomes a way that you actually hold your own memories of your life, okay? And when you make that shift, then the systemic work starts to actually reflect it. But when you're thinking in terms of, now, how are we going to make a systemic shift? You're already on the wrong page. And that's the sad news of it is that this stuff needs to happen from the bone. And where we're usually operating is talking about systems, about the complexity. But if you tell any story from your life, any single story, it can be anything. You know, your first day of school, your first kiss, you know, what you did yesterday afternoon. It doesn't matter what story it is. That story will hold all the content that we live within. So when you are actually in your life, you're doing complexity. You're in it. So it's very sort of ironic that then we have the field of complexity. And when you're in the field of complexity, you somehow pop out of the actual complexity to address it and give it jargon and to identify its patterns. And that's useful to a point, but only to a point, because in the end, you know, you can tell somebody how to ride a bike. It's not the same thing as riding a bike. So, you know, if you were to describe riding a bike, you could say, well, you know, you balance, you put your hands on the handlebars and you push this way while you lean that way. And that bears almost no resemblance whatsoever to the actual feeling of being on a bike. So I think that's a good example. And what do you say to people listening to this podcast? Very many of them are leaders of different kinds in, in companies and so on. What advice would you give them, given what we're talking about here with, with the importance of context? Like, how do they go about tapping into this context? Is there a, for them, a practical how that you could describe just to give them a, an advice? It's all about practice. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is they think that it's a professional application. It's a tool. This is not a tool. This is a practice. It's a way of life. It isn't something that you employ when you go into your work life. It has to be there all day, every day. It doesn't 
count, actually, unless you're able to be in that modality of perception when you're in an argument with your partner or your kids are driving you crazy or you have to figure out a complicated situation. You know, that's when you're in it. And I think for a lot of people, there's a, a, a nice safe zone of, well, I'm over here doing systems change and changing the world. So I have the right to be a jerk at home or to not pay attention to this in other ways. And I think for me, if there's one thing I would say is that this is all day, every day and with everybody and every organism. One of the things that I think happens, and this is in the work that I'm doing now with organizations and particularly family businesses I'm interested in for exactly this reason, is that the idea that the health of the organization is primary. And the health of the organization for me is not primary. The health of the families, the health of the community, the health of the environment, that's primary. So if you draw a lot, what, where is the edge? of the responsibility of the organization. You know, say you're importing re-rayed widgets of some sort, and you're doing that with sustainable intent, and you're taking care of your employees, and they have a good health care program, but there's a lot more relational process in there. I mean, how many hours are they working, and who's taking care of the kids, and in what way are the schools actually having to raise people's children because the parents are at work and the kids aren't getting what they need? So the nth order responsibility is something that I see as being part of the collective of organizations that we call the business world. And that is a collective that is not taking responsibility, is not actually, you know, the people are working too many hours. They're sacrificing the resilience of their home and of the community. And that resilience is absolutely necessary, in, especially in times of polycrisis, where people are having all sorts of mental health issues, economic issues, ecological issues, cultural polarities, technological crises. And so that flexibility, that resilience, that extra fat, if you will, the extra string to keep the things going is held in the household right? If you get sick, your partner covers for you. If your child needs help, you're going to have to stay home and really be with them. If someone dips into a depression, then you have to cover for them. So the resilience is in the home and it's being used up. You know, when someone dies or someone is injured or someone is going through something, everybody around them has to help hold that. And somehow that doesn't figure into your working hours or, you know, if your title is in the organization as the manager of the blah, blah, blah department, there's zero interest in what is needed to keep that family resilience and beyond that, the community resilience nourished and stored. So I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And I was thinking about this. Uh, I read somewhere in your new book also about the intergenerational living, so to say, and, and uh, what was natural and still is in, in some still in some countries here in Europe as well, maybe more down south, that we live very close to the other generations and so on. And we kind of cover up for each other. and We're always there for each other. And we don't have to literally ask for help. It's around the corner. That's maybe not exactly the case, for example, in Sweden, where you live right now. And I think somehow going back to those kind of family roots and families, 
for me, it's not only literally the family, but also very close friends, right? People you rely on. So it's kind of a bigger system that I'm very grateful for and find fascinating that, as you say, when we are thinking about the whole thing, we should include all those perspectives. Yeah. And thank you for clarifying that about the family, because that's absolutely what I mean. Not just the blood family. A lot of people's reaction mm. to their actual blood kin is not great, to say the least. So those people with whom you have relationships that are codependent in the right ways, right? Codependency got a really bad rap, but actually we do need each other. And it's been something very interesting living in Northern Europe, but also in the States, a little different there, that there's this way in which there is an expectation that somehow success has to do with independence. And so there's no implicit, tacit, intergenerational learning of how to be dependent and how to allow other people to be dependent, which is in absolute stark contrast to this very trendy vocabulary right now around collaboration and community. You know, those are easy words to say, but collaboration and community are interdependency. And that means that you have an obligation. So this is something that you don't have if you're just an independent free agent. You've essentially bought your way into this isolated position that has freedoms in it. You can sleep with who you want. You can believe in whatever God you want. You can have whatever career you want. Where in times where the, these older structures were in place, you didn't have that freedom, right? You had to take on the family work and you had to be in keeping with the religious practices. You know, you couldn't just run off with whoever you fall in love with. So it's been important to get that independence. But now there is a time when, you know, I think it's a good question to ask, how do you raise your kids if you know they're not leaving home? No, they're not leaving. You're raising somebody who's actually raising you at the same time to live together and to meet the challenges that are of this era. It's interesting to think about what happened, how many resources, how, how much resources it takes to have, a, say, a neighborhood of everybody having, you know, dinner for two or three or four, right? How many sets of dishes? How many sets of pots and pans? How many stoves are running? How many kitchen lights are on? How many faucets? are running, dishwashers are running, right? They just think about it in terms of resources first. And then if those people have to eat together, if you're eating in groups of 20 to 30, you're going to actually use far less resources. You have, you know, one house with all the lights on and the stove going, right? So this is something that I think is increasingly going to become imperative, that we have to figure out how to do things together. But in doing that, we have obligations to each other. And those obligations are not comfortable. So how to do that? I mean, I, it's, it's interesting. Think about how language changes, how conflict changes, how, you know, the idea of boundaried relationships comes into that when you're in collaboration or community in ways in which what is absolutely essential is that there be a tonality and an openness of resilience around mutual learning. Can we improvise together? If we're going into a time when we don't know what to do, the most important thing we can take with us 
is the possibility of improvising together. That if I were packing one thing for the future, it would be be that, you know, in transcontextual, intergenerational, mutual learning, improvisation. What are we going to do when we're in this situation? Are we going to freak out? Are we going to kill each other? Are we going to hoard things? Are we going to share things? Are we going to build things? Like what happens when we're in crisis? And how do we actually kind of front load that process? Begin the practice of perception, the practice of improvisation, the practice of what it feels like to be in mutual learning. And one of the most challenging places to do that is in the intergenerational space. Yeah, and I can see that a lot here in in Italy. And I see, for example, younger people who are very kind of fluid and there is a flow to it, how they interact with the elderly or even the younger ones and so on, because they're used to it from home. And that kind of um, experience I don't often see, for example, in a place like Sweden, because it's less of that. You might, in the worst case, meet for Christmas and, 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 uh, you know, Easter, depending on where people live, obviously, but still. But I think there is a beautiful gift in allowing people more and more to say, I need help, or I need you, or I need something, right? And not see it as a weakness, uh, especially in, 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 I think, in Northern, Northern Europe, it is uh, this expression that if you're alone, you're strong, right? Right. This is so deeply not true. Exactly. What do you mean by how people think and how that's different than how nature works? Well, there it is right there. There is no organism in a meadow that is proud of its isolation. <laughs> that's insane, right? You can't make life like that. Nora, I'm just curious, at this point in your life, how would you describe, like, what is your passion, you know, that thing that comes from uh, patire, so, which means whatever it is that you're really, truly willing to also suffer for if needed? I mean, I think I live my life in that mode. So the work that I do is often misunderstood. And people say, what is this warm data stuff? I just don't understand what she's saying. (laughs) And so, you know, in that sense, uh, there is a lot of sacrifice there because I, you know, it hurts to be misunderstood or to be underestimated. But I do persist in it because I feel that it's really very, very important that we tend to the places where these deep presuppositions are living. You can't tell somebody to fall in love or not fall in love with someone. You can't tell them to just stop being a racist. You can't tell them to stop wanting shiny things. You can't tell people to care. They have to actually care. And so my work is about that nourishing of the underbelly, the submerging place of allowing people to perceive the world in a different way with no instructions on how that will change their behavior or the way they think or feel. Let that happen on its own. You can't tell people what to feel, but you can put things side by side that allow them to perceive things in other ways. And then they will feel differently. But you don't get to say how. So for me, that is ecological. That is the question that moves beyond the development and perfection of the parts of a system and into tending to the way in which the different parts of a system, members of a family, aspects of a society, organisms in a forest, the way they shape each other, right? So I could get very self-possessed about who I am right now, but really, Vesna, who I am right now is really different because I'm with you. And so the way that I'm 
speaking is really different than it might be if I was with somebody else. We're in communication and that's an ecology. So what is possible to improvise together changes with who you're with and who are you? Well, I don't know who I am. It depends on who I'm with. Then I become somebody different. I mean, not entirely, obviously, there are things. But this is the piece for me that is so important because you can change policies, but if culture doesn't change, it doesn't matter if policy changes. People will have go-arounds. It's so powerful, this thing that you mentioned, like sometimes people say, okay, how can I be a better person? You know, but, but who can you be when you are with somebody or in a certain kind of context? I love that because I've also personally experienced how I am different in a context of a corporate situation, for example, and how I can be different in a certain community or in the forum that I've founded. And what happens to me and others there is very different. And it's not like I'm a completely different person, but the dynamics is changing. My thought patterns are different. My sense of kind of creativity, other kinds of conclusions, just the, the, how I feel is completely different, which changes me. And it's so powerful. That's why I think that if companies could be more run like a big, important community rather than an organization <laughs> would release a lot of um, what they're actually striving for, the innovation, the creativity, the caring for each other uh, and all of that. And hopefully recognizing the world around them, right? So where is the edge of the organization? That's always my question. When we do work with warm data with organizations, one of the things that we do is we invite the people with the participants to bring somebody from their life so that half the room is people who are, have nothing to do with, who aren't employed by the organization, who know nothing of the inner toxic workings and the confusions and the thisings and the thatings and the politics and the gossips, but they are in relation to and their own lives are associated through somebody that they care about. But the organization has no link to them. So they don't know that they're answering to this whole group of people who are not employees. They're grandmothers and best friends and jogging buddies and dog walking buddies and health caregivers and people who are children or best friends. or They're the people that you go and you cry to when you are burning out. So I want to bring them in the room because they're holding this too. And so this question, who can I be when I'm with you, it really changes when those people are in the room too, right? Because if you have people who are used to working together and they have a shared sort of set of limitations around where those boundaries of intimacy, where the boundaries are of just who you can be, But who you are with your best friend, really different. And if she's in the room, you get to be more than just the person who's usually in the office. So how do people typically respond when you do that work lab, when you bring other people in? It's always more like, woohoo, this is weird. But also, I think if there's a real need to make this normal, we need to do this a lot. This is not a town hall meeting. This is an organizational development meeting where the organization is more than the organization. And I think that's really, really important because there's been a free pass for the business world to just say, yeah, but profits come first. We have to make a profit. And at what cost? So the cost was coming from somewhere. And it's important to bring those people into the room. It's kind of radical, isn't it? But I sort of love it. It's like you just break the boundary there. Just break it. It's a membrane that needs to be opened. 
it's like inviting people into an experiment, right? So they don't have to be scared of what might happen if we do this, for example. The warm data work is never about the organization. It's working with complexity, and the complexity is going to include more than the organization. If it doesn't, you've done something terribly wrong. <laughs> you know, it's not like they have to give their opinions about the organization. That's more just sharing life stories. And when you share life stories, you have to actually recognize life. <laughs> so Nora, I find it energizing and, and um, also challenging for us to think about, you know, what is my vision? Like, what is the future I wish to see? And so on. And I've read somewhere in your books uh, and talks, like where you say like there is so much imagining of the future going on out there and as though the imagination of the future would not be pre-soaked in the past, uh, a kind of a linear casting of vision and then seasoned in the now. And it's done with such precision that it calls itself change. So you're very skeptical, I would say, to this question even, like what is the future you wish to see, Nora? What would you even respond to that? I'm so glad that you framed that that way. When I saw the question on the list, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> because what is the future that I want to see is the one that I cannot even imagine right now. I have no idea what it would look like, because that's the one where I know that the limits of my perception now have been expanded, where I am a foreigner in my own future, where I look back at who I am right now and I think, who was she? <laughs> and I think that's really important because it shows that there's been learning and openings into really different ways of making sense of our world. And basically, if that doesn't happen, the change won't, won't happen. So I don't know how we could possibly think that we can identify that with the same perception that's creating the limit that we're in. So for me, okay, where does that leave us? What that brings me to is exercises of things like synesthesia, where you're pushing your sensory processes into making new kinds of connections. You know, if I say to you, paint the texture of your coffee or dance the flavor of a rose, and you're having to put these things together that you're not used to putting together. And when you do that, you're actually able to open possibilities of new perception, new sparkles yeah. of perception can get in. I mean, the problem that we're in is very much like that movie, The Matrix, where you can only see what you see because you see what you see. So you see what you see because that's all you can see. And then we're like, well, let's envision something. Like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> we're caught in this dream. And it's only a dream. It's only one version of living. Human beings have lived in lots of different ways. They had hands, much like the hand you have today, but the hand spent the entire day doing very different things than your hand does. I mean, if you were born 15,000 years ago, if you were born in the mountains of China, if you were born in the Sahara Desert, right? So what do you mean this is how life is? This is not how life is. This is how we have had some sort of complicit agreement to partake in it. But this is not all there is. And I, I'm not willing to essentially sacrifice our species and thousands, millions of others on the altar of, yeah, but this is how life is. This is not how life is. But how do you get out of the habits of the perception that produce the confirmation that this is how life is when I have to get up in the morning and I open my dresser and I put on my trousers and I 
get in my car and I go to the grocery and I make the dinner and I make the phone calls, right? And every time I'm in all of these patterns of living, I am reconfirming, reconfirming, reconfirming. So things that are surreal, things that are asking you to perceive in new ways, being with people from other cultures who confuse you, getting lost, anything you can do, bringing neighbors into the organization because it's going to push the boundary. It's going to make it confusing in there. We have to get disoriented in order to get out. Our, our orientation and our comfort is the problem. And when I say our, what I mean, because there's a lot of people who are not living comfortably. When I say our comfort, what I mean is the way in which these habits are not pushed. So it's a comfort not of material things but of epistemological routine. So Nora, I know that your new book, Combining, is coming out, and I got a sneak peek yesterday night. But before we go into the book, just one question, like, when do we write a book and why do we write it? Actually, I get really frustrated. That's really what pushes me, is I'll be in conversation or I'll see something and I'll think, oh, what a mess. This is just a mess. The, the confusion and the way in which the perception is all tangled up in this thing is so messy. And then I want to write something that is a place where it can move again. It's sort of like a medicine for me. And so I don't write things because I have a responsibility. I don't write things out of duty. I don't write things out of discipline. I write things when they come flying through me and they demand to be written to essentially give it possibility of being in a different shape than it has been perceived. You know, what's it possible to communicate? Who's it possible for you to be? And that applies all the way through. What kind of a parent can you be? What kind of a child can you be? What kind of a friend are you? How do you feel about your sexuality? So this book is dealing with lots of things, lots of aspects of life. You know, the crisis of being in a relationship with the past right now and looking back at the violence that brought us here. And somehow realizing there's no time for justifications and excuses for the violence that has brought us to this place. And at the same time, if there is a, a living in a state of despising the past, that's also not going to be a place from which creativity and delight in life is born. Without that delight, the things that get created are um, cynical. Somewhere in the intro of the book, somewhere I read uh, something along the lines like, in this book, you can find rest and revolution. There is a creature in you and a creature in me. And that creature is actually exhausted with the various cages that we have created for ourselves. You know, push one for this and two for that and three for this. And I'm sorry, the context of your life doesn't fit on this form, right? Your call is important to us, but no, it's not. Or we'd actually answer the phone. We're living in a world that is deeply devitalized. And this book is a rest from that. There is vitality everywhere here. And in that vitality, there is the fire in the belly. You know, be frustrated. Fight for it. Don't forget to be human. Don't forget. You make snot. You make tears. You have earwax, right? We are living creature in a world of other living organisms. Don't forget to be alive. And the possibilities there are really exciting. So I'll read you the dedication. The dedication to the book reads, This book is offered to your pheromones that help you fall in love. I give this book 
to the you of so long ago that felt alone and not fitting into the world people called normal. I offer this work to your one crazy eyebrow hair with a twist of its own. This book is for your breath coming and going unannounced, making you implicit in the same wind that moves the clouds and the trees. I dedicate this book to the way in which you know, even as you try to describe a dream, that your words cannot express the vivid realm you encountered there, but you grope for language anyway. These untamed and unmappable phenomena are reminders of uninvited possibilities to be alive together, beyond illusions of control. To these possibilities, I offer everything I am. Beautiful. I love that. I read that. It's really uh, warming my heart. Rest and revolution. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much. And I'll just end with one final question, a small one. Uh, what do you think the world needs most at this time? We need to just be together, human to human. We need analog time. We need to feel each other's body warmth. We need to be in the same room and to have that human to human contact and to do that in ways that include other organisms. Okay. There's a, a quote in the book that says there will be no community without first communing. And so right now what I see is that the capacity for communing is so shriveled and fragmented and polarized and broken and fractured. And that thing needs to be tended to, healed, given room to have blood flow in it again, right? To have oxygen in it. It's like a limb that's been tourniqueted off. And that limb of communing is absolutely essential for us at this point. Before we can do anything else, you can't implement any of these beautiful models for sustainability on communities that hate each other. Yeah, so true. Thanks so much, Nora, for being on the show. Thanks for listening to the show. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. To make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you have been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.